0: this podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners like you kindly consider a contribution through patreon or paypal links are in the details box patreon is a monthly subscription that you can cancel anytime and paypal is a one-time donation any amount is appreciated and follow us on social media we're on facebook Instagram, and Twitter, the handle, the Beirut Banyan. And you can find us on our YouTube channel with the same name, and you can start watching the episodes as they're released. Thank you for listening, and thank you for watching. I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan. First of all, thank you for making time to do this in the middle of this global pandemic. Um, I'm going to say thank you a few times here because we've been trying to do this for, I think, a few months now. Uh, The first time we were meant to meet in person in New York, and then suddenly COVID 19 changed all those plans. We tried. I was still trying to make it to New York, but it didn't didn't work out in the end. That's true. That's true. And. you were playing hard to get with me a bit, but that's okay. I, you know, I like the game. <laughs> you know, I had a good excuse a pandemic. <laughs> actually, you're right. If any, if any excuse, that's the excuse. And I believed you because I was also, and I, I've been in New York since. So I've been doing all these episodes uh-huh. through Skype. Um, and for better or worse, we're doing it on Skype, and that speaks to the yeah. moment. Um, I kind of followed your journey from the States back to Beirut. I know that you were kind of waiting in London for a bit and then eventually made your way back. Um, I think this whole moment is very strange, but I'm glad that we're able to still talk about a very important issue that may be on the back seat right now only because COVID-19 is taking all the headlines. But this sort of large struggle that your book delves into is still front and center to any story, particularly when it comes to the Middle East. I'm just going to talk about the last section of the book first, and then kind of go back in time. And I want to emphasize, first of all, for anyone who's watching and listening, it's Black Wave, Saudi Arabia, Iran, and the 40-year rivalry that unraveled culture, religion, and collective memory in the Middle East. Positivity and collective memory. The book kind of wraps up on a positive note. And you describe the, despite all the despair that's happened the last four decades. There are moments of hope in Egypt. There are signs of hope in Lebanon that we've both witnessed. Going to Iran as well, the the region has positive, there is light at the end of the tunnel. And I'm glad you emphasized that point at the end. And then collective memory. I'm gonna start with Lebanon, in particular the last seven months where you are right now in Beirut. These protests are not going away. There's a determination on the streets to make sure there's political change down the road or some sense of economic justice and reform and it seems to be that is a demand that's not going away even when people go home because of covid-19 they're still going back to the streets and risking their lives yeah. demanding change yeah. i sense at the maybe this is maybe the critical part is that there's a there is a collective memory component to the story that lebanese are trying to recapture something they lost And these are the youth who may not even know what they're they've heard stories. They know that the country was not always like this. All generations are taking part, but the youth is front and center. And I think they're trying to maybe reclaim their history and move things forward. And I just want to get your your sort of immediate reaction to the last few days in particular, since you are in Beirut. Do you think that the protests have this kind of beyond the political and economic reform demands, that they're trying to reclaim something that there's a, we were not always like this. Lebanon does not deserve to stay like this. We know what the country could be like. And we want to maybe make our grandparents, our earlier generations proud of us that we got things right this time. Does any of that resonate with you?
1: Absolutely. In fact, I think it's more than that. Hmm. I think not just that we're trying to reclaim our past because, you know, the past is never perfect, Uh, whether it's in Lebanon or whether it's uh, the nostalgia in the United States for the 50s. You know, people yearn for a past because the past loses some of its wrinkles and you can remember the bits you liked and forget the bits that didn't quite work yes and there was a lot that did not work in lebanon before the civil war Mm -hmm. um disenfranchised communities um rural areas that were neglected you know the the issue of the has and the have-nots was Mm -hmm. there too particularly for uh, the shia community at the time but rural areas uh, everywhere and there were you know there was a big gap between social classes etc so yes uh, and sectarianism was was there in the system already but then it erupted into the violence of the civil war and the civil war was not just about religious groups fighting each other we all know that all sorts of players were involved uh, you know the Syrian army the Palestinian factions the Israelis yes there was a lot going on but it exacerbated sectarian divisions and it's also important to remember that it wasn't a Muslim versus Christian war solely it was Mm -hmm. Christian against Christian it was Muslim against Muslim it was it was it was everything yes the reason why I say all that is because I think it's important to uh, recognize that the past was not perfect but that it worked better than what we have today and that what I think the youth is trying to do is not just reclaim that past, but forge an even better future. Yes. Because what has really struck me in these protests is the unity between the regions, the kind of unity you did not have before mm-hmm, Nineteen seventy-five.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: I mean, I think people visited each other's towns, I mean, but how often did people in Nabatie, call out to the people of Tripoli. And that's, yeah. you know, for those who don't know Lebanon, Nabatieh is in southern Lebanon, dominantly Shia. Tripoli is in northern Lebanon, yeah. dominantly Sunni. And what you have now is protesters in Nabatieh and in Tripoli calling out to each other, going to visit each other in solidarity. Right. You have people in Baalbek, um, famous town on the eastern side of Lebanon in the Bekaa Valley, famous for its... Uh, Roman temples, Roman ruins, uh, famous for its uh, international uh, festival, music and performing arts festival, which yes. pre-existed the Civil War, and was also at the time, um, a, a sort of a jarring moment sometimes for the locals, you had the, you know, the elites descending onto Baalbek, a somewhat yes. poor city, yeah. um, to watch, you know, Ella Fitzgerald or Noriev, etc. Yeah. And um, and those those disconnects between the the haves and the have-nots and the region was very much present. And today in Baalbek, during the protests, you have people saying, you know, calling out to Nabati, to Tripoli, mm-hmm. to Beirut, mm-hmm. and then also to other parts of the region. So I think that what the youth are trying to do is recapture uh, the future.
0: Yeah.
1: They want to forge a different path forward that is not determined by their parents' mistakes, whether it's the remnants of the civil war, Mm -hmm. the sectarianism that was entrenched in the system, or the corruption that succeeded the the, the civil war and became the reason why we are where we are today.
0: You know, I'm glad that you you, aside from the ge- the geography and of course, Nabati and Tripoli, I mean, just a few years ago, you wouldn't imagine that kind of unity, at least when it came I to common. Much, yeah. yeah, and I'm I'm glad you you mentioned these two examples. um My own conversations with my grandmother from Tripoli, I mean, to her, Nabati could be somewhere so distant and she's never been. Even
1: then, right, when she was growing up.
0: Sure. And that's, I mean, that's the mandate, that's early independence. And Aside from it probably taking a long time to get there, there was not really much curiosity to sort of explore the South, or at least something beyond the comfort zone. Maybe Beirut was the limit. Um, And in the background, always, and I know this kind of predates maybe the story of of Black Wave and that struggle, but in the background, especially in the 40s and 50s, I always get the sense from that generation that things were moving fast. And in terms of modernity, that the Lebanese Mm -hmm. or let's not forget Lebanese, the region, was, and, and I think you pointed at it in terms of Baalbek, people were trying to catch up with what was happening. The trend was moving in a direction that was not necessarily a comfortable direction. And then, you know, these are maybe superficial examples, but my grandmother, she's in her 80s now, pictures of her in Tripoli of the 1940s or 1950s. I mean, not only Tripoli looks like a distant, remote place that I don't know, but she looks like someone I wouldn't recognize. That kind of hip clothing, this sort of fashion. Um, I know people talk about miniskirts all the time, but it's important to note that this is the 1940s, 1950s. This is not, you know, this is not now. This is a long time ago for Lebanon. And it's, it's very visible that Tripoli and maybe the way people were trying to identify themselves, there was a rapid sort of, there was a trend that wasn't necessarily resonating with everyone. And yeah, I,
1: modernization, if yeah. I may just uh, interject, you mm. know, modernization did happen very rapidly, and in some cases it was westernization that yeah. people didn't right. really adapt to quickly enough, and it was sort of seen as the best model, and so let's do this, and that's what the Shah was doing in, in Iran, right. and that's what the Al Sauds were doing in, in Saudi Arabia, and that causes clashes in in your
0: identity. Right. And you know what? I I mean, it's a good moment to actually acknowledge that this episode will come out on May 7. May 7, the last 12 years, has been sort of identified with a geopolitical struggle within Beirut. That's the May 7 events that happened on the streets of Hamra, primarily western part of the city, but in in 2008 and I mean, that is part of the story here. What I like about your book is that I, I read it and I listened to the audio version as well. Kim, I think you should have done the whole thing because just the intro and the conclusion is not enough. You should have.
1: <laughs> Logistically, it was hard to, to, to do.
0: No, of course. But I did listen to the conclusion Pardon. introduction several times just to catch your voice on it. Um, there, it's it's almost... And they are the none of them? And and sorry, yes, the acknowledgements. Absolutely. (laughs) That's true. That's true. It's nice to hear voices that I'm familiar with now. And many of them I've actually interviewed for the podcast as well. So it's kind of sort of, it was fun. But it's the widest lens. And it's also a microscopic examination. And, And both are needed. You're able to take the reader completely out and sort of see the last four decades in the most general way possible. And then there are particular stories that, I mean... I was, I was fascinated to learn. In particular, in the Lebanese context, only because that resonates with me more, Lebanon has seen all of the above. It has seen modernity. It has seen violence. It has seen economic prosperity. It has seen rapid economic decline today. And it is seeing now a protest movement that is trying to change the social order and the social fabric, maybe to a point, a social contract. Are all of these events tied in To the wider struggle between Saudi Arabia and Iran? Or or is this a moment where Lebanon is trying to maybe dislodge itself from that geopolitical quagmire and only look at things from within? And I guess I'm asking you in the background, is this a domestic issue that only impacts Lebanese in Lebanon? Or is this still part of a geopolitical consideration that the Saudi Arabia-Iran tussle is there in the background and it still matters?
1: Let me Start from the end and go back to the beginning of your question. I think that we are still part of the tussle to some extent, Mm. but Iran has the upper hand. Mm. And I think the Saudis have somewhat, you know, given up on playing a role in this arena. They don't have allies they can utilize anymore their checkbook diplomacy did not pay dividends the way that they hoped it would they're not very strategic they're not very um they they don't do diplomacy very well i Mm, think mm, mm. Uh, or they haven't in the last um few decades in, in in lebanon they invested a lot in specific people yeah. and then they get impatient when those people don't deliver and when then one, when one of them gets killed like Rafiq Hariri there isn't really an obvious replacement I mean yes then you hand over to the sun but if the sun doesn't deliver then you're left with not much capacity right right they don't build they don't build um alliances and networks and state-to-state relations in in an organization to organization and ministry to ministry Mm. they're not systematic in the way they do this Mm. so at the end of the day they find themselves outmaneuvered by a country that is under sanctions that has a much smaller budget a bigger army but can't deploy it um, in the region so it deploys its proxy militias and its uh, paramilitary you know revolutionary guards and its puts force etc mm-hmm. and they're very good at that the iranians they're very very good at um centralizing decision making and fanning out and using their proxies in the region and they are very good at building loyalty uh through patronage fear and and cash yeah and you know and and weaponry obviously it, yeah. the fear factor is there as well i mean they pay and they provide but there's also fear involved mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that buys you some of the force loyalty but at the moment it looks to me as though iran has the upper hand here and i'm not quite sure i see how the saudis can Recuperate that if they even want to, because they sort of felt that it was, you know, a sunken cost, and they should just give give it up.
0: Right.
1: I want to go back to, so 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 to to address the second point of your question. Um, what we're seeing in Lebanon with the protest movement is, to some extent, separate from the regional struggle mm-hmm. because it is about our national identity and our future right. independently of those two. Right, independently of what Saudi Arabia and Iran have to offer, mm-hmm. except that because of Iran's entrenched role in Lebanon through a group like Hezbollah, it ends up being a lot about Iran's role in, in Lebanon, de facto. Right. It ends up being a lot about Hezbollah's involvement in the corruption and its veto power mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. its you know um, rejection of reforms, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And its presence in Lebanon as a deterrent to foreign investment and to, you know, tourism, et cetera, et cetera. So it mm-hmm. feeds into what people are protesting about. But it did not start out as a protest movement against Hezbollah or against Iran. Right. It is part of the subtext.
0: Right. Right.
1: But I want to address something you said. I, I want I want to address the issue of modernity mm-hmm. because I want our listeners, your listeners and viewers, to be to understand that. You know, 1979 was not necessarily, or should not be only put in the context of a rejection of modernity. Because Mm -hmm. I don't Mm -hmm. want people to come away thinking that this region is not compatible with modernity. Of course, of course. I think we have to be very careful, neither is is Islam, and that is one of the big misconceptions. I think it's more about forced modernization following a specific model too rapidly. To sort of try to impose a template mm-hmm. where um, you know you will have western music you will wear miniskirts and you will you know um, study French history yeah. when people think well actually I'm quite happy with my you know modest hijab and I can still learn about French history but actually I would also like to you know read about Ibn Battuta or whatever right, right? so I think we need to be careful to frame this properly. Sure. I think that, yes, for, you know, for, you know we, there's a whole episode that could be done about the drivers of the Iranian revolution. And some of it was a rejection of the Shah's, you know, white revolution, this forced fa- rapid modernization, capitalism, etc., the yeah. Western model. Mm-hmm. Um, and then came Khomeini, who took that and turned a revolution against. A, a despot, a king and a revolution against uh, western imperialism Yes. M- driven mostly by leftists modernists, nationalists and turned it into an islamic revolution and the ripple effect went beyond Iran and that's why we saw this trend over 40 years mm-hmm. that, fought, that pushed back against some of the opening up and the progressive right. uh, lifestyle that was starting to become part of the region. Yes. And it rippled out of Iran, and then the reaction in Saudi Arabia, etc., etc., all the way to Pakistan and Egypt and, and so on. But, you know, my mother grew up in the Netherlands. She's Dutch. And she grew up in what was in the 50s and 60s, or in the 50s still, a very conservative somewhat puritanical society. Right. Right. We have to remember that, uh, you know, today's Netherlands was not the Netherlands of of the 50s. There was a progression there. Yes. But it happened on a different timeline. Yeah. And there were things that are acceptable in the Netherlands today that were not acceptable, that were frowned upon. And to some extent, when my mother came to Lebanon in the 60s, she found a country that was much freer yes. and mm-hmm. there, was, there were parties and there was going out and um, she loved it and that's why she stayed. And, and it's this terrible turn that we took in 1979 with the start of the rivalry between Iran and Saudi Arabia mm-hmm. that brought us to where we
0: are today. You know, I, I like these references. Even, I mean, now you're reminding me, my grandmother in the same conversation, I think, she said she was sort of condescending towards Cyprus. That Cyprus was so, in her mind, backwater. absolutely, like, you know, those that those island villagers, they don't know what the, and, oh, yeah, Cyprus is in the EU today. Cyprus is not that kind. Of, but yes. but in her yeah. mind, not too long ago, yeah. Lebanon was the, quote, advanced sort of version of a Mediterranean lifestyle that could sort of find yeah. its way. Yeah. And that's not that long ago. And I, I like that the book, it, it reminds it reminds, I think, the, the reader that this is recent History—it's very recent.
1: Absolutely, yeah.
0: You know, I don't know enough about Musa Sadr. Um, I've read the vanished Imam. Musa
1: Sadr being the, the Imam. The, yes, the who um, was Iranian with Lebanese ancestry, came to Lebanon in yeah. the sixties and helped found the movement for the disenfranchised, which became Amal, and then he tragically disappeared in in, in Libya. In,
0: in Libya, Palestine. and he—he, I—I he, yeah. I mean, I. I've only read one, one book on him. It's The Vanished Imam by, uh, by yes. Fouad Ajami. And, I, and I, I actually like that you referenced the dream palace in, in, the, uh, in the book. You mentioned Khalil Hawi's story, the suicide on the balcony in 1982.
1: Of the Greek Orthodox poet, yeah. Yes,
0: and the, there's a lot of... I mean, to me, these are figures that were trying to navigate that shift. that Especially Musa is yes. sort of a figure that is trying to bridge that, that what would later be a, a, a gap. Between the decades before him and the decades after, that there were sincere attempts. And even and, and you're right to point out, of course, that it's not that modernity is is impossible for the region, not that at all. But it is worth noting that the 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 powers that would emerge from the protests, especially in 1979 onwards, their their first target were the progressives and the liberals and the kind of the voices that I think by the end of the book, you sort of resonate with the poets, the uh, the artists, those that were sort of trying to find free expression in a time of otherwise authoritarianism. And I like that. I like that there's a struggle in there that is now kind of kind of coming back Absolutely. in a way.
1: Well, it's because, you know, Ronnie, back then um, the um, you know, the, 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 the struggle became very quickly about. Or became very quickly connected to uh, political Islam and and fundamentalism Mm -hmm. and that's why 1979 is such a turning point because that you know although 1967 with the six-day war and and you know the loss the Arab losses there marked the beginning of the end of Arab nationalism and the rise of Islam as a political force 1979 I think really solidified that yes. with the rise of uh, with the victory of Khomeini in, in Iran and the you know the rise of, of Islam to power mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, bringing down you know the most powerful one of the most powerful men in the region America's ally largest army in the region etc yes so it, it solidifies the power of, of political Islam and there is something you know we have to be uh, clear about the fact that you know Khomeini's vision for uh, for Iran was a you know slight, was retrograde and so of course the first victims yeah. are the same people who helped bring him to power right right they are the leftists the modernists the poets the thinkers the intellectuals
0: because the the, 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 the opponents of the Shah, in other words. The, the, yeah, yeah,
1: the opponents yeah. of the Shah, yeah. who allied themselves with the Islamists right, right. and thought that they could outmaneuver the Islamists yeah. and found out that they were actually outmaneuvered by them mm-hmm. and found out that the Islamists were ruthless yeah. in their path to power.
0: Yes, yes.
1: Right? And so that, that, um, that wave washes over Uh, Iran very quickly and then the rest of the region and the the rivalry as the rivalry starts between Iran and Saudi Arabia and the Saudis feel like they have to be holier than thou and start exporting, you know, their uh, understanding of Islam and posing as, you know, with even more money and more means as the the benefactor of the Muslim masses, mm-hmm. you know, it becomes a religious competition. It becomes a competition about who is the real leader of the Muslim world. And when you keep feeding these trends yes, and it becomes about religion and who is more Muslim than, than the other, um, then you start uh, erasing the role of culture, of music, right. of poetry. Because it's only about religion.
0: Yes, yes.
1: And what I want to make clear as well, and what I try to do really in the book, is to show that although this is what starts to dominate at the top, and this is what dominates in the headlines, mm-hmm. underneath, people are still vibrant in their understanding of their culture, yes. and they're fighting back, and they're defiant, and they have concerts. And they fight with the religious police when they come knocking on their door and they defy the dictator who tells them that they should fail you know the 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 the, the key message that i would like people to come away with from this book is a reminder of the incredible diversity and pluralism that is still very much alive but that has found itself silenced constantly and beaten down by forces that are much more vocal and much more brutal in their willingness to stamp out uh, free expression right yes so that's why that's why very often they are in the end the winners because the leftists the intellectuals the poets they're not necessarily going to they, they don't want to grab their gun to make themselves heard. yeah and that's that's the issue everywhere it is the loudest voices that win And we're seeing that around the world today, um, including in in the West. It is the people who are showing up in Michigan on the state capitol with their guns. Right, militias, American militias, who grab the headlines and who scare the others. And the forces of populism um, are on the rise today because they are the ones willing to silence, muzzle, um,
0: oppress the others. I mean, I, I fully agree with your what you're saying that the although their 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 voices are often muffled, silenced, and eliminated at times, that the free expression in in its purest form, it's still there, and I think it's it's Absolutely. it's it's something that you cannot eliminate permanently. It'll come back, and I wanted to get at the maybe the common thread that ties at least recent protests that we've been seeing even though saudi arabia as you said has taken a step back and maybe maybe sort of gave up to a degree in particular in lebanon but if we look at iraq and if we look at iran too the last 6 7 months the protests that erupted all seem to be based on accountability and anti-corruption and good governance and that and you, you said it right before. Hezbollah, if it fits into the narrative, at least in Lebanon, it's there tangentially. It's because it sort of became part of the system and it, in a way, preserves that system. But the, wep- but the weapons were not the direct target, at least when it came to Lebanon. But the, the common thread of trying to, trying to establish states that respect their citizens. In your mind, is that the path or is that the, perhaps the only way to kind of end this conflict? and end the geopolitical consequences of this conflict, where if there is no. a... N- no, okay. No,
1: <laughs> no, I think, I think that they, those two are separate things.
0: So, okay, so there's no path to... God, yeah. Well, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: well, I think that ending the conflict mm-hmm. is going to require some big shifts in the region, mm-hmm. and it's going to require a change from within the leadership in Iran. I don't want to. I don't want to. I'm not calling for regime change. Mm-hmm. Whatever you know, that's a, like an argument to be made by by others. Yeah. I don't think that that's the way forward. But unless, until somehow the Iranian regime has a change of heart and decides it's just going to look after domestic affairs, or unless there is a change within Iran because you know protesters uh, force the hand of the regime mm-hmm. or bring mm-hmm. it down, etc. I don't see this rivalry ending. I don't see now with these two current leaderships, I don't see a possible rapprochement Mm -hmm. or a detente or Mm -hmm. a reconciliation. So should we just sit and wait until sometime, maybe in the future, there's a change of leadership in either country? No. The point about governance is that I think it's important to stop waiting for the geopolitical uh, factors and the situation to change this is what the youth are doing they're saying forget about you know I- America and, and Iran and, and Israel and the Palestinians and yeah. Arabia. what about just fixing the country mm-hmm. and I think that that is the path yes towards resolving some of the geopolitics Because so, okay, these countries yeah. are less of a of a tool a pawn that can be used by the the regional the the regional powers Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i I think you know just the way that the arab israeli conflict has been used forever by dictators in the region to explain why you can't write freely or you can't speak freely and that's why we have such a huge budget for defense you know and this sort of you know no voice should raise rise above the voice of the battle um, as goes the Arabic expression. Uh, we can't now have the Saudi-Iran geopolitical uh, battle as a reason why we can't invest in infrastructure and schooling right. and governance, etc., and use that to excuse all the excesses and all the corruption.
0: Does sovereignty play a role at all? And, I, and I'm going to focus in on Lebanon. And I, I, the, the sentiment that I see is the, the genuine desire to fix Lebanon. And let's say that the protester or, or these demonstration that that they mobilize to a point that they actually accumulate some domestic power, and I just your own sort of opinion here, is the ultimate stumbling block this rivalry, and it manifests itself in Lebanon as Hezbollah or Hezbollah's weaponry. That is, is there a ultimate hurdle that we cannot overcome unless the rivalry, for the reasons you mentioned. Uh, ends?
1: There is an ultimate hurdle, but I think it should not deter us from pursuing change and and
0: governance.
1: Mm. So the pursuit
0: matters, the pursuit is there? Yes, yes. yes. You have
1: to remain doggedly focused on that. And I think there have been some gains already Mm. by the protesters. I mean, we brought, you know, they brought down a prime minister perhaps they don't like the current one but there has begun there is a dialogue that has begun Mm -hmm, about mm the reforms that are needed and then you can debate whether you like the reforms or not yes but at least um there is there is something to to, to discuss to debate Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. there has been a call for imf assistance now you can discuss is this the worst possible scenario for lebanon or is this the beginning of a solution but at least there is there is movement. And, and um, those those is pursuits... There, is there an, yeah. ultimate, mm-hmm, is sorry. there an ultimate hurdle? I mean, you know, I don't want to sound um, naïve, but the more that the state can build institutions, the less there is need for uh, a state within a state. But it's, it's very tangled up at the yeah. moment, because, yeah. you know, obviously, as I just said myself, Iran does have... The upper hand here right. so are the reforms going to help in fact hezbollah solidify its position in the country or is the geopolitics of the region too complicated at the moment right. for them to really hold on right so you'll have a lot of analysts who say hezbollah is actually uh, you know in a very very tight spot mm. because of the drop in oil prices because of the COVID nineteen pandemic because of Iran's domestic problems. You know, things are not are not easy. Right. So I think that it's important for protesters in Lebanon to remain focused and not give up. And it's hard, it's really hard because life has become really difficult absolutely in absolutely yeah. you know salaries have lost sixty percent of their values. Restaurants yeah. are closing hotels are closing people are losing their jobs left right and center yes it is hard but that actually also then drives further protests because
0: people are right. hungry they're right. enraged by what's been going on you know i had this conversation several times and in the background the economic crisis is the core and that the more you the more the population hurts the more they will demand and the old political hesitations or whatever you want to call it that kind of inertia to go back to what's familiar in Lebanon it's it's always there but the economic pain is the driving force and in a way it's yeah. it's uh, of course it's horrible that the i mean the situation is 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 so bad today in Lebanon but it's also very impressive that protesters are still pushing forward and the both go hand in hand today
1: Yeah and I have to say that it's also quite impressive that we've managed to flatten the curve here Yes, Some true. of it is, is sheer luck because if you look around the region, yeah. COVID nineteen has not, you know, had this um, this dramatic impact the way it, it's had in, in, in Italy or the UK or the US. Yes. Uh, but we have done quite a few things right as well. Right. And we've had time over the last two months to build capacity. Yeah. If there is a second wave. Yes. But it's really it's incredible that in a country that is practically bankrupt. That is so indebted, where there is, you know, um, such such despair and such corruption, hand in hand, that I can call up any pharmacy in the city and ask for gloves and masks and sanitizer to be delivered to my home in the middle of confinement. Yeah. Something I couldn't, you know, stuff that I couldn't find in Washington D.C. Yeah stuff that I found, you know, that I had trouble finding in London. It took um, it took me know, two weeks
0: tested. to get a mask in New York. Yeah,
1: I got tested for a P- uh I got a PCR test upon landing in, in Lebanon mm. from, from my travels on the repatriation flight. And then two weeks later, uh, I was negative. And then two weeks later, out of an abundance of caution, because I have an elderly mother, uh, I was fine. I had no symptoms, I had nothing, but I thought, what if I'm asymptomatic Mm, mm. you know what if it's just developed over the last few days but I'm asymptomatic and I want to go visit my mom sure so I went to the hospital and I got a second PCR test and I paid for it the first one was free Mm. Um, I paid for that one myself and I tested negative and then I felt more comfortable you know going to visit my mom with a mask and everything but I felt less guilty about it right and I, I think that that's quite something and it tells you something about the resilience of this country and resilience is such an incredible uh topic to investigate resilience has its downsides whatever happens you find the detour you'll bounce back but you don't fix the systematic problem
0: you know and this is the but, but resilience
1: yeah. is also why we can still somehow function as a country while we're bankrupt in the middle of a pandemic
0: Kim, that is the perfect segue and i know i've already taken enough of your a lot of your time i'm not going to take too much more of your time but you couldn't have done this better for me resilience you know the, we we met each other i think under under difficult circumstances um we met in in january of 2014 on the corniche uh i believe it was i think it was zeytoun bay i think yeah, or or Zétuné somewhere bay. next yeah. to st george and we took Zétuné a Zétuné stroll bay, yeah. and we just sort of had a friendly chat um and i think I that and was the fr- gave
1: me the best line ever.
0: I'll let you say it.
1: Do you remember it?
0: I don't I remember it. You're, you're dancing into the abyss.
1: Lebanon is dancing into the abyss and look where we are now. Yeah.
0: And that was 2014 and and I remember hearing the the broadcast later. I think it was BBC Radio. BBC World Service if I'm not mistaken. And uh I mean I aside from wanting to hear my own voice, which I initially did not enjoy hearing myself on, uh, but you get used to it over time. Um, the storytelling craft, and in particular that kind of story of focusing in on one individual and one particular case study, if you will, and a push to make sure that things are things are fine. And that's that kind of story that we shared was one of, it's okay to see people dancing next to a explosion. It's it's okay. But that shouldn't mean you adjust yourself to the abnormality, that you 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 solve the problem as well. So and that second step, I see that as what's happening today, that the it's it took a long time, but there is an impatience today with the abnormality because Lebanon has changed economically. Lebanon is definitely far uh, less manageable today than it was six years ago, let alone earlier. But I sense that at the core that the patience ran out and people do not want to, quote, dance into the abyss any longer. That to me is the light at the end of the tunnel. I don't know if any of that resonates with you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But I have to say, I have to give credit to the young generation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, the millennials that we dismiss so easily. Mm -hmm. They're the ones who are driving a lot of this because it's their future. Yes. And they have none. they would like to stay in Lebanon. Yeah. But they find themselves having to emigrate because there are no jobs. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, with this global situation, frankly, there are no great jobs anywhere at the moment. Travel right. is difficult, etc., etc. But it is the young uh, generation of this country that is Resentful of what their parents' generation has allowed them to happen, yes, depriving them of a future. And it's you know the Greta Thunbergs in you know in, in, in Europe that are calling to action on climate change because like, you know, you've had a great life, uh, but we are going to have to live with the consequences of all your excesses and right. you know, uh, deforestation and um, rising temperatures, etc so i think it's it's um it's not just an impatience it's a it's a wake-up call by a young generation that sees no future yeah in a country that they actually love
0: right right And it's
1: unfair it's unfair it's 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 in c'est la justice
0: well that's the takeaway quote this time (laughs) 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 maybe it's your turn you know, Kim, I'm just going to in the episode, I'm going to include two two snippets of um, a piece that you shared in The Atlantic about Anthony Bourdain. And yeah. the reason I want to include that is because uh, just like Black Wave or even your earlier book, The Secretary, about Hillary Clinton and her, and her journey and your journey as well from Beirut to the States. Um, within all these stories, I sense that the storytelling craft is essential. And I think that's why I enjoy reading your books and your articles, and all of the above. I think it's the storytelling. Uh, even that radio piece, and I'll link it as well. There's a, um, you, you make the complex digestible, and it's rewarding. And I, I, I mean. That's so wonderful to hear. I, I, and you know what? Uh, I owe it to the BBC as well. Uh, I don't know. This may have been 2012. John Irving, who, um, he was one of the hostages in, in Lebanon in the, in the 1980s. Sorry, not John Irving, my mistake, John McCarthy. Uh, right, right. Yeah, like, the names are, yeah, John McCarthy. And I, I mean, I only knew his name from, you know, maybe from just reading about these hostages in, in Lebanon. Uh, I was on BBC Radio 4, and there was a man interviewing me on the tour with a microphone and just sort of asking me questions about yeah. Beirut. It was him. He's sharing his own life story, his own pain in Beirut. Yeah. and reliving it on on the tour that i give the the walk beirut tour that's the kind of storytelling that fascinates me so i owe it to you as well for my own personal curiosity and, and storytelling in general and i've taken too much of your time kim
1: no i've loved this conversation
0: but the, the next time we it's see
1: little dark around me and as i mentioned <laughs> i don't have great lighting i'm not fully set up yet and i don't know if people can hear my dog in the background eating her bones I, which I used as a bribe to keep her quiet. <laughs> I did pick
0: up something that was happening in the background. I didn't want to ask, though. <laughs> I'll only say two more things. First, I love that you thought it was May 7 while it's May 6. That's coronavirus. All the dates are confused yeah. now. I actually had to double take. I'm like, oh, my God, it's May. Wait a minute. No, it's May 6. So we're both Although going. So the
1: episode will air on May 7th now. So
0: you, you, did, you figured it out for me. I'm like, oh, yeah. she solved the problem the second thing is anyone listening anyone watching you are i think people turn to you for expertise on the middle east on lebanon on politics on diplomacy that's second level your top tier advice is sushi because i've never sat down with someone while eating sushi with that meticulous care to the menu and every item in its place and you were so certain of what you were ordering and (laughs) Just, you know, 30 seconds, you're done, and you give me the menu, like, okay, you're t- like, oh, I don't know how to keep up. So that's the expertise. You know,
1: not even my favorite thing to eat, actually. Even but better. I think that I have my favorites on every menu, so in every restaurant, I know, like, okay, I'll have, I go to the same place for the same thing.
0: Well, I remember you shared with me that one of your passions was either, I think it was opening a restaurant or being in the food world, maybe having, having a food yeah, sort I of... Think everybody's
1: really thinking that in the pandemic uh, pandemic world, when you look at the pain that this has inflicted on the uh, restaurant and hotel yeah, industry, my favorite restaurant in New York, um, Prune, um, owned by Gabrielle Hamilton, she had a really, gosh, devastating piece in the New York Times about, uh, you know, her dream restaurant of 20 years, she's been there and had to shut it down and doesn't yeah. quite know how it will reopen or if it will reopen, um, you know, the restaurant and the dining experience is going to completely transform.
0: That unfortunately uh, seems to be the most the immediate.
1: So I think I'm going to stick to baking bread at home <laughs> well, and that? having friends over for dinner. So whenever you're in, Perfect. just let me know.
0: In the meantime, I'll enjoy these things on Instagram because that's where I see them. Your your attempt at sourdough bread, I think recently sort of sh- Irish soda bread. S- soda bread, see, this is where I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> All things food I'll leave to you. Kim, thank you so much for your time. It's been great, Ronnie. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. And a friendly reminder to help support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box below. Until next time, I'm Ronnie Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan.